Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. And now please give a warm welcome to Dr. David Shulkin and Mark Zitter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this meeting of the Commonwealth Club. I'm Mark Zitter, a member of the club's Board of Governors, the chair of the Zetima Project, and your moderator for today. Before I start, I'd like to ask, do we have anybody here who is a veteran? Great. For the radio audience, that's a number of people. Welcome and thank you for your service. I'm very pleased to introduce today's speaker, Dr. David Chulkin, the ninth Secretary of Veterans Affairs and the author of the new book, It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country, Our Broken Government and the Plight of Veterans. As I think many of you know, the VA health system is the nation's largest integrated health system. Dr. Shulkin was brought in by President Obama as Undersecretary of Veterans Affairs initially, and he was brought in to clean up the VA's troubled hospital system that was suffering from a major scandal. His success led President Trump to appoint him as VA Secretary, making him the highest-ranking official to serve in both the Obama and Trump administrations, and also, as you heard, the only Trump uh, cabinet official to earn unanimous approval. In fact, at the time, one of the senators on the Veterans Affairs Committee said, we can't even pass a gallstone around here unanimously, let alone a cabinet secretary. (laughs) Born on an Army base, Dr. Shulkin was the first non-veteran to be named VA secretary. He introduced substantial changes to the VA, with bold moves that dramatically reduced wait times, increased transparency, enhanced accountability, and tackled the veterans' suicide rate. His efforts earned early praise from Republicans and Democrats alike, but Dr. Shulkin says he ran headlong into Trump political appointees who were intent on privatizing the VA, and eventually that led to his ouster by tweet. In his new book, he opens up about his time as VA secretary and the ruthless political appointees that he says he encountered. Since leaving the government in early 2018, Dr. Shulkin has continued to shed light on VA privatization and how he believes it will negatively impact our ability to ensure health care for those who have fought to protect our nation. Let's please give a warm Commonwealth Club welcome to Dr. David Shulkin. So, David, the first maybe obvious question is why you chose to write a book about your experience. Um, I really think for two reasons. One is when you leave government, and I had been there for about three years, um, you finally have built up information about how the agency works. And I had developed, I think, a formula for how to begin to reform and fix the VA. And then the day you leave, for me, it was pretty sudden by tweet. Um, there's no, there's nobody to hand it off to. There's no transition. Nobody is calling you up and saying what was working, what wasn't working, who are the allies, how do we continue? So I felt that my commitment, the reason I went to Washington to help veterans would only be fulfilled if I could put down that plan on paper so that future leaders might pick it up and say, you know what, this sort of makes sense or this didn't make sense. And secondly, I really felt after going through what I went through and my family went through that we can do better when it comes to public service, that the country relies upon citizens to, after they've obtained a level of competency, to raise their hand and say, I'll go for a few years and I'll help in Washington. I'll help make this a better run government. And in the environment that I experienced, my concern is, is that if we allow the environment of personal attacks and toxicity and the, the partisanship that I see uh, and that we're seeing play out even on today's television screens, um, that people aren't going to want to serve anymore. And that's going to end up hurting all of us as Americans. So I wanted to not in a political way, but objectively lay out what my experience was so people could make up their own opinions and think, can we do better than what we have now as a country? Mm -hmm. And why this particular title? It shouldn't be this hard to serve your country. Well, as I already mentioned, I didn't have a lot of time to think about what it would be like if I were fired. Um, And so the 
I was on the phone with my wife uh, one evening, and I actually didn't get the president's tweets. I didn't have time for, for that. He writes so many of them. <laughs> but my wife does, and she says, I just got a tweet from the president. You've been fired. And um, that was about 6 o'clock at night. So I was alone in my Washington apartment. My wife was living in Philadelphia. Um, and so I said, well, I guess I don't have to go into work tomorrow. But what what do you do? And I decided I wanted to tell people why I felt this had happened. I felt it was important to tell people that I had been not willing to go along with what many of the political appointees wanted to do with VA. So I decided to write an editorial. And it's interesting how you contact the New York Times at night, but I was able to do that and get my editorial published by midnight that night. And I ended my editorial by just saying it really shouldn't be this hard to serve your country. And then literally for weeks to months afterwards, I'd be walking on the streets, mostly in Washington, and people would stop me on the sidewalk who I didn't know and say, you know, you're right. It shouldn't be this hard to serve your country. So that really stuck with me. And so when I wrote the book, I said, that's going to be the title. Great. Let's go back to the beginning of your time in government. I know back in 2009, you were still running a big health system. You were thinking about making a career move, and we had a phone conversation. Is that right? Yes. And I said to you, the Obama administration is just coming in. You should go into government. You've got this great medical background. You're a terrific hospital administrator. Go into government. Anyway, you ignored me. stayed in the private sector. But six <laughs> years later, when President Obama called, you... You moved into the, the VA. And now, I understand that a call from President Obama is a bit more persuasive than my off-the-cuff advice. But tell us why you decided at that point, after a very successful private sector career, you decided to take a big pay cut and go into government. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I've known Mark for probably 20, 25 years, and I always listen to your advice. Well, not that time. <laughs> not that time. Maybe it just took a little while. Okay. Okay. Um, so uh, I always tell people that, uh, there is no such thing as a free lunch. I'm sure all of you have heard that. I was invited to lunch by somebody I didn't know. It happened to be in Washington. And um, I thought it was a free lunch. And we were sitting there, and we just got to know each other. It was a very pleasant lunch. And right as we were wrapping up our lunch, and I was going to go back to, to Philadelphia from Washington, he said, do you, he says, you've had a really great career. I was the CEO of a hospital system at the time. And he said, do you have any regrets? And I said, I really don't. And I said, but, you know, maybe I've, I've been reading about what's happening in the VA with the long wait times and our veterans not getting the care they deserve. And, you know, my only regret is I've never done public service. And he said, I can I can understand that. We shook hands and we left. And about a half hour later, my cell phone rang and it was the White House. I thought it was a prank call. Because how would they get my cell phone? Now I know how they got my cell phone. But, but um, they said, um, the president would like to speak to you. We need somebody from the private sector to come and help us. And so after I got that call, um, I did what many people do when they're faced with a choice. I took a blank sheet of paper. I drew a line down the middle and had a pro side on the left and a con side on the right. And quickly the con side filled up. It was going to be leaving my job as a CEO, moving to Washington, taking a big pay cut, doing the divestments, um, reputational risk. At that time, I didn't know you could be fired by tweet, else I would have added that. Um, and on the, on the pro side was really nothing except for I really felt, how could you say no? When your country asks for your help and when it comes to our veterans – how could you say no? So I just threw the piece of paper away and said, I'm not going to think about whether this makes sense. Uh, maybe I thought about our conversation. <laughs> Probably not. And I just said, I'm going to do this. Great. And when you came aboard, of course, the, the VA had a big scandal about wait time. Yes. If you remember, there was a cover-up, so it was quite a scandal. That was more than a year earlier than you came aboard. Yes. And you told me later that when you came aboard, not much of anything had been done about it. So yeah. what did you do about it when yeah. you got aboard? Well, uh, the wait time crisis was first exposed in Congress in April of 2014. I didn't arrive in Washington until July of 15. So it was about 14, 15 months later. And that was largely because of the vetting process. The vetting process to go through Senate confirmation was about 
12 to 14 months. Uh, Even for the undersecretary? For the undersecretary as well. Right. Today, it's shorter because, as the president has said, he doesn't believe in vetting. He'd prefer the press to do the vetting. So he just announces people and Mm -hmm. sees what's happened. But President Obama was very methodical. Mm -hmm. And the White House did not want to nominate somebody that they would have to withdraw because they would see that as an embarrassment to the Mm -hmm. president. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when I arrived in Washington 15 months after the wait time crisis was first exposed, I was surprised that almost nothing had been done. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't a plan. And one of the things I learned about the culture and government is, is that they really do wait for a leader to be in place before implementing a plan. So... Uh, I knew that was my mandate, that we had to fix wait times. And the first thing I did to answer your question, Mark, is I asked a question. And I said, how many veterans are waiting for care? And they said, there are 550,000 veterans waiting more than 30 days for appointments. And then I asked a question that by looking at the puzzled looks on their faces, they thought I was really stupid or I was kidding. And I said... Is that a good number or is that a bad number? Is 550,000, is that, what does that tell you about, about whether that's a good situation or not? And the reason I ask that is because as a hospital CEO, if I looked into my scheduling system at the system I ran and I looked out for three or four months and saw all the practices were busy, I said, that's good. That means people want to use our services. Having wait times, having people wanting your services is what every private sector CEO wants. What you don't want is somebody waiting for care that shouldn't be waiting for care. In other words, people are waiting for elective physical exams, eye exams, colonoscopies, preventive colonoscopies. It's not so bad maybe if you're waiting 30 days. But if you're waiting because you're having chest pain or you have a nodule in your breast or something else, that's bad. So I said, in order to answer the question on whether our wait times are good or not, how many veterans have an urgent medical issue that requires care that are waiting more than 30 days? And they didn't know how to answer that question because they had ordered their tests in 31 different categories of urgency. So I said, starting tomorrow, we are going to order every consult in the VA only two ways. It's either routine or urgent. And we went back and every doctor across the system reordered every consult, either routine or urgent. In a week, I had the answer. We had 57,000 veterans waiting for urgent care more than 30 days. Now I knew we had a problem. That should never be the situation. So I immediately called for a stand down. The stand down is a military term where you just focus on getting the mission done. And the stand down happened the very next Saturday where every VA medical center stayed open the entire weekend till we saw 57,000 patients with urgent medical care problems. There were no exceptions across the country. I wanted the country to act as a singular unit to get these 57,000 veterans seen. By Monday morning, we had all, but a little bit less than a 1,000 seen. Now, after we demonstrated we were able to take care of veterans with urgent care problems, I said, what usually happens is, if you take care of an urgent situation and you go back to normal behavior, it usually builds back up. That's what you see in most problems. So I said, the way we're gonna fix this is, we're going to put in same-day appointments throughout the country. And people thought I was crazy because the VA had gotten in trouble because they weren't able to give appointments within 30 days, and I was saying we're going to do it on the same-day basis. But I knew if we didn't do that, that we wouldn't ever be able to assure the country that veterans weren't waiting for their urgent care. And by December of 16, right, when when President Obama was preparing to leave office, I was able to tell him, that every VA medical center in the country had now was able to deliver same-day services to all veterans with urgent medical care problems in both physical and mental health across the country, and that situation exists today. Mm -hmm. And finally, Mark, what I did to make sure that people understood that we would be accountable for this, I published our wait times publicly. 
So today you can go to the VA website. You can see the wait times on any VA in any appointment category across the country. And the VA is still the only system in the country that I'm aware of that publishes its wait times. Yeah. Terrific. I think the audience can see why I was hoping Dave would go into government. You're an extremely effective uh, administrator, and, and to me, the cutting through the bureaucracy and saying we're going to do this today, we're going to do this this weekend, we're going to have everybody in the VA, I don't care if you're on vacation, gonna, we're going to have this, this facility open to make it work. Did you get pushback for that? Well, I think as many of our, many of our veterans know, um, you know, I had not served, as you had said, and I needed to learn the culture, but, you know, when you learn the culture, you learn what works in the culture and what doesn't work. And the VA is very much like the military. When there is a directive given, mm-hmm. uh, the people in the organization really work hard to follow the directive. So I use that to my advantage. And um, I think the job of leadership, particularly in government, is to be clearly focused on a mission, but very clear about what the priorities are and what the directives are. Mm-hmm. So I made it clear that I felt it was essential that we address the wait time issues. Mm-hmm. And I gave the directives that we were going to do this and people got behind it and implemented it consistently across the country. In fact, uh, just last year, I published an article in the journal, of the, Medi- the journal of the American medical association that for the first time compared wait times now Mm -hmm. in the VA to the private sector. And what may surprise a lot of people is that wait times in the VA are dramatically better today than what you would see in the private sector. So as you know, in Boston, if you try to get a primary care appointment in the private sector, it's 40 days. In the VA, it would be about six days. Mm -hmm. And so, so I think that, you know, there are 375,000 employees who work in the VA healthcare system. I think they feel extraordinarily proud that they were able to take a situation that, frankly, they were embarrassed about, a national scandal, and turn that around and really deliver high-quality services now to veterans. Great. Well, that's a testimony to uh, to your leadership. And another story I'd like you to tell, it's really about the other and other major focus you had early on, which was on preventing veter- veterans' suicide. Yeah. Why was that a priority, and what did you do about it? Well, um, you know, suicide is an American public health crisis. If you've watched the statistics, um, we have a dramatic increase in both youth suicide, particularly teenage suicide, and elderly suicide. In the veteran population... It's that same statistic, but it's much higher proportions. Mm -hmm. And it really is something that I think is a emergency. It's a public health emergency. And so with 20 veterans a day taking their life, I didn't see how we couldn't make that our top priority. And so when I became secretary, I made that our single top clinical priority. Um, Of the 20 veterans who take their life a day, only six are getting their care in the VA healthcare system. So there are 14 that are out in the community. And my fear is maybe they're not getting any care. Mm -hmm. So the strategy that I felt we needed to do was not only prioritize it in the VA, but also start reaching out to the community, to the churches, to the veteran service organizations, to the community groups like United Way, um, to local governments and state governments and bring everybody together to begin to focus on this in a coordinated approach. And we started a national campaign. Fortunately, Tom Hanks became our spokesperson uh, where the effort was to increase awareness and have people reach out when they felt that there were veterans in need and at risk. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that the efforts that are underway are beginning to have an impact. Mm -hmm. It's a long term. It's not an easy simple solution to fix this. Mm -hmm. And you have to look at the underlying issues of depression, anxiety, PTSD, pain, chronic pain that 60% of veterans in the VA report, and substance abuse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, Let's turn to your tenure as secretary under President Trump. I know you've told a little bit about your story of being fired, and you were surprised at that. Uh, It sounds like you were equally surprised to be appointed uh, to secretaries, President Trump, you were getting ready to leave office as Absolutely. undersecretary, 
right? And then something happened. What, what happened? Well, let's just start with what happens after an election. Mm-hmm. Um, after the election in November of 16, we at VA were all expecting what's called a transition team to come in from the administration. And it's actually required by law that a transition team come in so that when January 20th comes, there's a team from the new administration who had talked to the old administration and they would have a plan in place. The Trump team didn't show up for a while. Many of us thought because maybe he didn't think he was going to win, but but there really wasn't a organized approach. But eventually, closer to December, a group of people arrived, these political appointees on the Trump transition team. And very early on, they made it clear they had no interest in talking to political appointees from the Obama administration. So um, I never got a chance to sit with somebody and say, look, I know you guys are taking over, but here's what we've been working on. This is how we fixed wait times. This is how we're working on suicide. This is how we're curing hepatitis. This is what we're doing for homelessness. Their attitude was, if you were an Obama appointee, no thanks, no interest. That was very disappointing for me because I I didn't have political aspirations. I just wanted to see the progress I knew we were making continue. So no one spoke to me. Uh, I had to prepare a resignation letter like every other political appointee. And I knew my last day would be January 20th at noon. You physically had to leave the building by noon on Inauguration Day. And um, I was packing my boxes. Uh, January 11th, nine days before inauguration, I was going to work and getting dressed in the morning. And I was listening to the news as I was getting dressed. And the reporter said, today, the president-elect is going to have a press conference at 11 o'clock. And is going to talk about what's going on preparing for office. And by the way, he's going to announce the new secretary of the VA. And I said... I'd like to see that press conference. (laughs) I, you know, I care who the secretary is. I hope he picks a really good person. There were lots of rumors about, Mm -hmm. you know, admirals and other people, some of them really good people. Uh, So I watched the um, press release at 11. Mm -hmm. You guys all saw the clip in the beginning. And um, I was a little bit surprised when I uh, heard that. But. You know, one of the reasons why I was really surprised was because I explained the Obama administration was so different. When I was undersecretary and they were going to nominate me, they said, we want you in Washington with us when we make the announcement. We want your wife to be with us. We want you to review the press release. We want a list of validators like Mark Zitter that who would the New York Times call and say, what do you think about this appointment? They gave me a call list of senators and congressmen that they wanted me to call before so they wouldn't be surprised with the announcement. Everything was well orchestrated and planned out. So I had assumed, even if, you know, the president might ask me to stay on, that I'd have the same type of thing, but I didn't hear anything from them. So uh, this was just the beginning of me and maybe the rest of the country learning this president does things differently yeah. and don't expect what happened in the past because... He uh, he just beats to his own drummer. Well, we definitely learned that. Yes. All that said, you had some good early successes and accomplishments uh, yeah. as secretary. Um, interestingly, you had to take another pay cut to be secretary from yes. undersecretary. Yeah. That's kind of a strange thing. Yeah. But I know one of your early priorities uh, was changing the congressional mandate that prohibited the VA from offering services to anyone who was discharged less than honorably, which is about 15% of all veterans. Right. Why was that a priority and what happened with that? Well, this goes back to my priority of reducing veteran suicide. So a lot of people don't understand the military situation. A lot of our veterans obviously do. Uh, About Today, about 250,000 people a year get discharged from the military each year. Mm -hmm. We used to be much higher, obviously, Mm -hmm. when the military was bigger. Uh, But of those 250,000, 15% will get discharged with an other than honorable discharge. So it's about 40,000 people a year. What that means is, is that uh, that's not a dishonorable discharge. A dishonorable discharge would be somebody might have committed a crime, maybe killed somebody. 
hey, other than honorable discharge means that they probably did something like curse out a commanding officer or do something behaviorally that wasn't acceptable in the military. And if you look at these people with other than honorable discharges, they often are suffering from some type of behavioral health issue. Frankly, many related directly to their service. So when I, uh, I once went to an event that a veteran service organization asked me to attend, there was a young man on the stage and he had returned from his eighth tour of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. And you could see, it's not that I'm a great diagnostician, you could see he was suffering from something behaviorally. And what happened was he returned from his eighth tour of duty and his wife had taken off with another man, left him. And he just went crazy. And so he got in his car and he started trying to chase her all over the country. The military went and found him and arrested him. He was AWOL. He was discharged with other than honorable. So he shows up at a VA at the registration desk. He's telling this story. I'm the undersecretary. He's telling this story about my VA. And he goes and he asks for help. He says, look, I'm, I want to kill myself and I don't know what to do. They registrar looked at her computer, didn't even look at him and said, sir, you're not a veteran. And I just said, this can't be. Somebody who's gone eight times who needs our help, you can't do that. So I, if I wanted to help people committing suicide, the people you see on the street, we hear about homeless veterans, they are often other than honorably discharged because they have no benefits. They have no health care. The government has just basically said you didn't deserve any of that. So I went to the president and I said, if we're, if we're going to be serious about this, I want to cover every veteran except for the dishonorable, those who have committed serious crimes. And I was told I wasn't legally allowed to do that. And I said, I'm going to do it anyway, because it's the right thing to do. And after I said I did it, then my lawyers came up with a way that they thought I could do it. <laughs> but that, that's the way it works in government. You know, a lot of people don't want to take risk. Mm-hmm. So you have to do what you think is right. Obviously, you don't want to break laws, but you have to do what you think is right. And then um, people will rally around you if it's the right thing to do. And is that a policy that's continued since your departure? It has. It has. It is not legislatively changed. Mm-hmm. So Congress could change it and give them the exact benefits. What they continue to do today is under the authority that I did, which is to say, I consider this an emergency situation. So we're going to be extending emergency benefits to this group. And, um, and, and that's how they do it today. But legislatively, that could be changed mm-hmm. and should be changed. Let's talk about a key issue, probably maybe the key issue uh, during your tenure that led to your departure, yeah. veterans' choice. So by that we mean, can veterans, or under what circumstances, can veterans be treated outside of the, uh, the veterans, the VA system? What's your attitude towards choice, and how did that differ from the politicals that uh, led yeah. to your ouster? Yeah. So I think if there was one lesson that I learned that many people learned from the 2014 wait time crisis that happened primarily because of two fundamental reasons. One is we did have a unusual and intense amount of injuries happening from IEDs and other types of close uh, combat in Iraq and Afghanistan. So we saw the VA being flooded with young people with very severe injuries, many of them actually the invisible injuries of war, emotional issues. But the real issue that was happening with wait times was actually our Vietnam veterans. Mm -hmm. Vietnam veterans becoming, at the time that I arrived, average age about 68 to 69 years old, where medical demand was growing. And so you had a perfect storm of both our newer conflicts and our Vietnam veterans requiring services that, frankly, VA wasn't prepared for. And so the conclusion that I came to, and I think most people came to, was VA could not handle this alone. Mm -hmm. It needed to work with the private sector. Congress authorized the CHOICE program for three years, temporary program, so that VA could work with the private sector to get veterans the care they needed. When I was secretary, I felt strongly the CHOICE program had to become a permanent part of the way that we deliver care, which is 
a recognition that we needed a strong, sustainable VA, but we had to work with the private sector. If you cared about what was happening to veterans and you didn't come to that conclusion, you were going to see the wait time crisis happen again. And I didn't want to see that happen. So I was very supportive of working with the private sector. Some would call that privatization. When I entered VA, 19% of veterans got their care in the private sector. When I left VA, that was 36%. So I'd almost doubled the amount of veterans going in the private sector. So I'm not against working with the private sector. What I knew best, I was a CEO in the private sector. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. Where I differed with the... Uh, political appointees is that I also felt we had to create a modern, sustainable, strong VA that simply giving veterans vouchers to go into the private sector and washing our hands of it was going to be bad for veterans. And it wasn't even what I wanted. You speak to veterans, they wanted a strong VA. And so the political appointees wanted to just see more and more people go in the private sector and shrink the commitment to the VA, both financially and also in terms of other resources being given. And the way that they have done that, and they have succeeded at this part, which I believe is a huge mistake, they've created a system that allows veterans to choose the private sector through what I call administrative rules. If you live... uh, more than 30 minutes drive time from a VA for primary care, or if you live more than 60 minutes drive time from a VA for specialty care, or if you wait more than 20 days for a primary care appointment or 28 days for specialty care. And as I've said, I've been in healthcare my whole life. I don't know any clinical system of care that designs their eligibility criteria on wait times or drive times. What we do in healthcare is we design it on the clinical needs of the patient. What's the best thing for the veteran? Does the VA offer the best services? Does the private sector offer the best services? That's where the veteran should go. That's a clinical assessment. So I believe we made a huge mistake, and I believe that the political appointees cared more about their ideology of privatization, and I was focused on doing the right thing for a patient from a doctor's perspective, which I am. And so um, I believe that um, this is going to lead to some unintended consequences down the road for our care of veterans. Mm -hmm. Problem, I'm looking at a quote I wrote down from your book saying, I'm convinced that the path now chosen, if allowed to continue, will leave veterans with fewer options, severely weakened VA, and a private health care system not designed to meet the complex requirements of high-need veterans. You also believe it's going to break the bank. Do you really believe it will break the bank? There was a bipartisan commission that was during the Obama administration, but it was half appointed by Republicans, half appointed by Democrats, chaired by the former CEO of the Henry Ford Health System. Uh, the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic was on that was on that commission, and they actually priced what it would cost to follow this exact path of using administrative rules to let veterans go into the private sector. And it was close to $100 billion. So um, where does that money come from? The VA, under the new secretary, testified before Congress that we can open up the system and it will cost the VA no new dollars. Well, it just simply defies logic. And therefore, that $100 billion is going to have to come from the corpus of the VA supporting our VAs just at the time that they need that money to modernize and become sustainable. So I think this is a huge policy mistake. But look, I'm not always right. I'm just suggesting that we need to be very careful in monitoring this to make sure that if resources start getting to be taken away from the VA, 
that Congress, who has the responsibility of oversight of this, is aware of it and looking out for it. What's the VA's, VA's budget currently? Well, the entire VA's budget is about $205 billion. Mm-hmm. About $90 billion goes for health care. Right. So remember, VA also does cemeteries and pensions, right? Yes, big, and disability benefits. Disability. So there's a big GI Bill, home, home, homeowner loans, uh, important programs. Yeah, so most of the staff are in the healthcare system. Yes. Right? But a lot of other money yes. goes elsewhere, too. Right. That's what we're all... I want to ask you a little bit more about serving the Trump administration. You know, m- uh, many Trump critics say, how could anybody serve in that administration? Yes. You have a conscience. And clearly, you try to steer clear of all the big political things. You're not a political person. Um, but uh, you ran into a moral dilemma. You write about very effectively in your book regarding the president's response to the KKK rally and the counter-protest at Charlottesville. And you told your family there, you know, I, I'm thinking about speaking up, but it could get me fired. So tell us about what happened there. Yeah. Well, look, um, when when President Trump, uh, you know, I can't say he asked me, but when I when I heard about this on the press release, you know, my first reaction was was that um, this is a opportunity to continue to serve veterans, mm-hmm. um, not an opportunity to serve the president or serve in the administration but to continue the work that I felt so strongly about. So, frankly, I was delighted. Um, And I had hopes that the president was going to change from the way he ran the campaign to bring the country together. And I felt if I could be part of bringing the country together, that that would be a great honor to do that. Um, Obviously, I think, you know, the president had a different plan for the way that he decided to run his administration. But, you know, quite frankly, when it came to veterans issues, uh, it was something that he cared about. And he gave me a great deal of support and freedom to be able to get things done. And I was very grateful that we were able to get 11 major bills through Congress with bipartisan support signed by the president in my first year as secretary. And so I felt comfortable about staying in my lane, doing my job. But there were issues that, frankly, I just didn't feel I could stay silent on. Charlottesville happened to be a day that I was with the president when this happened. We were at his club in Bedminster, New Jersey. He was playing golf. I was working. Uh, and um, right as uh, Charlottesville was unrolling on the, on the TV, he and I were doing a bill signing for the GI Bill. Um, and... Um, he made comments that people are aware of that, frankly, uh, I just didn't feel comfortable with. And I didn't feel that I could stay silent on them. And so I went to the press uh, without asking permission, without clearing with anybody. And I said, look, I'm not speaking for the president. I'm speaking for myself. I think it's outrageous what's happening in Charlottesville. And I don't think that Um, When I speak to our World War II veterans, I know that they put their lives on the line exactly against this ideology, the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists, and that I feel an obligation that we speak out against hate. And I had said to my family, I said, look, I'm going to do this and I may get fired. And if so, I'm okay with that. And that was the issue again on privatization, which is I knew I was taking on the administration. I knew I served at the president's pleasure. I knew it might be my last day. Almost every day I felt it might be my last day. But, you know, I'd be okay with that because when I went to office, I didn't give a, a political allegiance to a party. I didn't do that for President Obama either. I went to serve because I felt it was the right thing to make the system work better for our veterans. Mm-hmm. Did you get any blowback on the Charlottesville comment? Uh I don't think he was watching TV that day. Uh, he never said anything to me. The White House press staff were not happy that I did that. And I said, okay. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Well, I think one of the reasons you were, in fact, I remember having lunch with the old year secretary. And I, after your first year, I said, why do you think you've been so effective? And I remember you said, you said partly because, you know, I'm not political. No one knows if I'm a Democrat or a Republican. I'm just trying to get stuff done. And I guess the VA has a, a special, um, kind of an advantage in that I'm going to be overly generalizing here, but uh, uh, people who are progressive tend to like the VA because of its social services and people who are conservative may like it in part because it, it's military and yeah. you kind of have more bipartisan support there than in, in many other departments, right? Yeah. I, I mean, that's certainly the way that 
that I tried to run things. Um, I think, unfortunately, that it has changed. I think that now we're seeing partisanship enter veterans' issues. I think we're seeing partisanship enter into the military. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a very dangerous thing to happen because we have a volunteer military. And if we ever get to the point where only Democrats feel it's the right thing to volunteer or only Republicans do Mm -hmm. or people act in a way that is more political than, you know, where the military has always been, which is an apolitical organization, I think that's very dangerous. And so watching this divide happen um, is something that really is concerning to me. And I hope that we can have a reset on that. I hope that the military and VA and, frankly, healthcare in general becomes much less politicized and more bipartisan. We all, we all hope that. Uh, I want to get to a couple of these wonderful questions from the audience, and thanks to the audience for these. Why can't the DOD and the VA join forces when it comes to health care? Uh, I actually think that there is a great deal that they could be doing together. Um, the culture of government is very siloed. Uh, and I will tell you that um, there are lots of forums for DOD and VA to work together. In the When I was undersecretary in the Obama administration, there were joint regular meetings between VA leadership and DOD. And I will tell you, I felt it was a check-the-box exercise. Each organization would come in, they'd speak their mind, they'd get up and they would leave, and very, very little was accomplished. Mm-hmm. When I joined the Trump administration, Secretary Mattis said to me that he had a choice when he retired to either go on TRICARE or the VA. TRICARE is, of course, for the active duty. It, it, yeah. It's the retirement plan. Mm-hmm. And he purposely chose VA because yeah. he wanted to see how difficult it would be to enroll. Yeah. And he said it was pretty difficult. <laughs> and so he said to me, look, um, you have my support. And the reason I know that uh, is that his staff told my staff that Mattis said to them, the secretary of the VA asks for something, consider it, it's coming from me. Mm-hmm. And so um, DOD and VA started to bring the walls down. We created together a now a common electronic medical record, something that hadn't happened for 20 years, despite Congress asking us to do that. Mm-hmm. We joined together our suicide offices. In other words, I took the DOD's head of suicide, brought them to VA and created a singular office. Mm-hmm. We started buying our supplies together and putting our systems together and started bringing some of our hospitals to work together. So I do believe that these organizations can work much closer together, but they have different missions. The mission of the DOD and the health system of the DOD is military readiness. They have to know if soldiers are called upon that they are prepared to go in the fight. The mission of VA is to care for those who have served. So I believe it makes sense for them to have different missions, but work much closer together. Okay. Here's a sort of a, a, maybe a similar question a bit. Um, I could argue that the VA is the most socialized medicine part of the American healthcare system, right? The government owns the system and employs the doctors and other workers there overall too. And like it or not, I think that's the truth. Um, it also is able to get, maybe as a result of that, lower prices, lower costs yes. in the system overall. So this, this is an audience question really that talks about, could, we, uh, could you reflect on the politics and the practicalities of trying to extend some of the VA benefits, uh, for instance, uh, the prices they get on the discounts on prescription drugs, more broadly, at least to Medicare, Medicaid, or some other government programs, or across the rest of the population? What are the big hurdles to that change? Well, um you know, let me just start at the high level. I, I, when I was asked to come to VA, I thought, okay, well, they're asking me because I've run private sector hospitals, so I'm going to bring all these industry best practices to government and make it more lean and efficient and show them how it should really be run. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, it was exactly the opposite. I learned much more 
from the way the VA system runs that the private sector should be paying attention to, lessons that should go back out to the private sector that would help all Americans that the VA is currently doing. So I have a lot of respect for the VA system and the outcomes and the achievements that they've had in helping, you know, 9 million veterans who rely upon them every day. Um, the VA's size and scale, like, for example, in purchasing drugs, I think we have used quite effectively. VA buys the drugs at a cost that nobody else in the country does. I don't think you can just easily extend that to all of Medicare, unfortunately, because um, the pharmaceutical companies then would no longer give VA that best-in-class pricing. Mm -hmm. uh, we've looked at it. Um, actually, President Trump had that idea. Mm -hmm. uh, he asked me, why don't I just buy all the drugs for the country? And um, But I don't think it's – I don't think that that is – a solution that would work directly by itself. But I do think that there are, you know, VA and DOD buy their drugs together. We buy them for the Indian Health Service. And so we've used our federal buying power in a way to help citizens and taxpayers. Uh, but the Medicare system, I think, is just way too big to simply integrate into it. So hard to do that from a practical standpoint, politically as well, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about probably the most controversial part of your tenure. In July of 2017, you took a trip to Europe that yes. became the subject of a great deal of controversy. Uh, the Washington Post reported that you spent half of that taxpayer-paid trip sightseeing with your wife. You got free tickets to Wimbledon, and, you, and they positioned it as yet another example of a Trump official misusing public funds. So tell your side of the story. Yeah, look, um, part, part, part of the reason I wrote the book was was that I just— I don't want to tell sides of the story. I wanted to just lay out the facts as they were and let readers make their own decisions about whether anything was done improperly or not. Uh, and, 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 um, you know, um, that, that's what I've done. Um, you know, I will simply say that, um, what the political appointees did with deliberate leaking of false information to get me out of office is exactly what's wrong with the political environment today. It almost doesn't matter whether things are true or not. Once you make allegations in this environment, it almost doesn't matter if they're true. The media runs with them. They take on a life of their own and the facts get forgotten, which is why I've laid out the facts. But just very simply, because I know not everybody has read the book, and I yeah. don't want to spend yeah. a lot of time on this. No. Um, you know, VA secretaries, cabinet members don't make their own travel arrangements. There are staffs who do that. When you go to Europe, this was a trip called the Five Eyes, the Five Allies, the United Kingdom, the United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, who have fought every war together since World War II. This is a conference that's happened 45 times. Never has the VA secretary not gone. We are the largest of the allies. This is our responsibility to continue these relationships. I value our allies, obviously. Uh, so this was a trip that we knew about for two years, months in the planning. Every single part of the trip was vetted and approved by VA, by the White House, by the State Department, when you go overseas, by the CIA, and a number of other agencies. There were no surprises here. There was nothing done at all that was unapproved. The sightseeing refers to while I was in 50 hours of lectures that I gave and meetings with their allies, at nighttime after the conference is over, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock at night, we went out in London to dinner to United uh, on, on a Saturday or Sunday to see a museum. That's what was called sightseeing. The Wimbledon on a Saturday afternoon, like almost everybody else, we enjoyed a game at Wimbledon. We went with our friends, never had any involvement with government, weren't even U.S. citizens, never worked at the VA, never sought business with the VA. That's what's called a prohibited contact. If you seek business or seek money, there was none of that. Everything was up, was, was, this was politicized and allegations become 
politicized and used for warfare in our current environment. And that's that's really unfortunate for public service. Well, I think you did a nice job laying it out uh, in your book. And what was striking to me was that the initial reports were based on a leaked early version of an Inspector General report, which wasn't even accurate, not the corrected later ones, uh, the major media reporting this. And then at the very end, there was another report that even after you left office that completely exonerated you, it never made it into the media. No, no. And, you know, people had been saying to me all along these same People that didn't want to talk to me because I was an Obama appointee, uh, clearly I wasn't their choice for secretary. People have been saying to me all along, they're working against you, they're, 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 they're plotting to overthrow you. And I was like, I don't have time for this. Mm-hmm. I've got serious issues to run. Uh, I'm not going to pay attention to this nonsense. I didn't take it seriously until, as I say in the book, I couldn't avoid it because they had written out their plan to overthrow me, literally written it out in the email that they printed on a, from their personal email. They printed on the copy machine and left it there by mistake. And then staff members brought it to my deputy secretary, and now I have it in writing. Our plan is to get rid of the secretary's chief of staff because she's a Democrat. Our plan is to get rid of the deputy secretary, because while he's a Republican, he's not supporting the president's ideology enough. And they leaked a story that ended up on the front page of the Washington press saying the president was going to fire him. They said, we're going to get rid of the undersecretary, my old job, and put in one of our own. And then we're going to fire the secretary and we're going to do that through political means. So this was pretty clear, but they executed that pretty well. <laughs> All of us were gone. Well, it's, it's, it's really a shame. And one little piece of inter- uh, the story that was interesting is, I guess the question for you is, so the Washington Post wrote the story about your travel that you felt was erroneous. Isn't it typical for the press to call and ask for a response before they, they print it? Yeah, I, I, I was at the Washington Post at a forum like this, and they asked me about it, and I said, you guys never even asked me about any of this. You just wrote this stupid story about that I went to visit Little Mermaid statues and was <laughs> visiting things. It was craziness. And they said, well, we tried to contact you, and we were told you wouldn't speak to us. And this press office in the VA was run by a political appointee who clearly was cutting me out and didn't want me to respond to stuff that they were leaking. So uh, I never had a chance to do that. And, you know, subsequently, I've gotten to know the reporters who did that. And I think that they feel uh, I don't want to speak for them, but I think that they understand now that they were part of a. Um, they were played. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And But, you know, look, uh, the press in some ways, I think, has accountability for what's happening in Washington, this partisan divide. Uh, I can't stand watching either of the major news networks because they're so I think what most Americans want is they just want objective information to let us decide we don't need everybody's opinions about this stuff well I think what most Americans want of their public officials is to get stuff done yeah I know that's the kind of thing you focus on so it must have been enormously frustrating to have all this stuff that had nothing to do with serving veterans getting in your way it was it was extremely frustrating how how much time what I called these distractions, and I don't mean to minimize them, but, you know, you know, attention on this trip, which, frankly, every other VA secretary had done. I went and I compared my travel to previous VA secretaries, and, you know, it was less. Uh, I knew that I always paid for my own personal travel. So I thought it was a distraction, but it really did prevent me from continuing to get the work done that I think I was there in the first place for. Yeah, yeah. March 28th, 2018, you spoke to John Kelly, who was then Trump's chief of staff, and you had heard some rumors that you might be fired that day. Yes. And Kelly said, well, I'm chief of staff. I haven't heard those rumors. That's not going to happen. And uh, a few hours later, just a few hours later, he called you back and said, you know what? I think the rumors are true. And when you hung up the phone, you got the call from your wife that you'd been fired yeah. by a tweet yeah. overall. Why wouldn't 
Kelly have known in advance. He's a chief of staff of, of a major personnel change. And you were also, I think, supposed to meet with the president the next day, yes. which he also knew about. And I spoke to the president that day. Yeah. The president right. called me around noon that day, and we had a pretty extensive conversation where he didn't mention that. Um, I, I, You know, I think that um, this is this is a reflection of the situation that I think is now pretty clear. The chief of staff job is a very hard job. I think General Kelly tried to do the job and thought, I'm sure he wouldn't have taken the job unless he thought he could do a better job. But it became clear that um, there were people going around the chief of staff, which I didn't, I always went to the chief of staff first. I felt that was the appropriate chain of command. Uh, of a cabinet secretary not going directly to the president, but there were a lot of people going directly to the president around the chief of staff. And I think ultimately General Kelly left. And I think that, you know, most people understand that he was frustrated that he hadn't been able to be more effective and help because there were so many multiple ways of communicating with the president that the chief of staff office became um, less effective itself. I I think that, um, as I said, I spoke to the president that day, and then five hours later he tweeted something out. So clearly he had gotten additional information uh, that led to his decision, of which I'm not privy to. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the president tends to take information from a number of sources and then make quick decisions, and I think that's what he did that day. Yeah. Interesting. Another quote from your book. You said, I never doubted the president's intentions to do the right thing for veterans, but I was very concerned about where he was receiving his advice. And those are the political appointees and others. Yeah. 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 I mean, the 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 president would often call me and say, you know, I've heard this about what's going on at VA. And I appreciated when he called me because it gave me a chance to talk to him directly about his questions or his concerns, which I think was um, the appropriate way to handle it. But I always wondered, well, who is giving you that information? If it wasn't the secretary telling you about this, who is coming to you and talking to you about the situation? So clearly, as I said, he had multiple sources of information. This is not that unusual for presidents to have personal advisors and other people feeding information. But um, but he clearly had a number of sources. And as I also describe in the book, there is a little bit of a situation that that um, is now a meme mm-hmm. um, that my daughter told me about. She said, Dad, you're now a meme. And I quickly had to Google what a meme was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but it was a situation where the president and I were sitting in the Roosevelt room and he turned to me and he said, Will, will you be at the big meeting on Veterans Affairs at Mar-a-Lago this weekend? And I said, no, because frankly, I didn't know about it. <laughs> and uh, so the meme is him asking me that and me going, I don't know. <laughs> and, and, and people were wondering, well, how could there be a big meeting about Veterans Affairs with the president if the secretaries doesn't know about it and not going to be there? So there clearly were multiple paths of communication. Disconnects there, yeah, yeah. Got some other great audience questions. Your book didn't cover construction of new VA health facilities. Yeah. In Alameda at the old Navy base, Alameda Point, we have been waiting for a long time for the new clinic and columbarium. Your book raises questions about whether the clinic will ever be built due to a push for privatization. Yeah. Yeah. That's concern about some of the new facilities? Well, some of this is self-inflicted. The VA... um, in their construction processes are not known for doing things in a timely fashion or on budget. The Denver facility, which is the latest VA to have been built, was a $363 billion initial budget that ended up being $1.8 billion. And so there are legitimate questions about the competency of building projects. Because of that, Congress cut back on the funds for VA construction till they could gain confidence and have held up multiple leases to build new facilities. It's the exact, uh, I understand why Congress doesn't have confidence. Uh, I wouldn't have confidence with VA's track record on this, but 
the response to it, rather than fixing the problem, has been to hold veterans hostage and have them in subpar facilities or, or you know, facilities that have overrun their capacity. And so I believe that the job of a VA leader is to go and to fix those problems. Fix either the communication, fix the process for construction or find an alternative way. Mm-hmm. The way that I wanted to fix it is by working to use government dollars, but let the private sector build these things. Mm-hmm. So we asked for authority and we got it in something called the chip in act where Congress allowed us five pilot sites where we would allow the private sector to build our facilities for us cheaper, faster, and I think better construction. And so I hope that the new VA secretary continues to work at this, to be able to allow Congress to see there is a better way to do this so we can get those facilities built and those leases approved. Great question from the audience. It says, I'm a disabled Vietnam veteran. I'm fortunate to be at the Palo Alto VA where the medical care is excellent. The problem is getting into the system. It took uh, 25 years for the VA to agree that Agent Orange, Orange yeah. is bad stuff. Yeah. And then it says, why not accept every veteran into the VA? Well, um, these, are, these are two different questions. One of the questions is, is how VA does its benefit system. Mm-hmm. And I've come out and I've said in the book, I think we have it backwards. We, we create an adversarial relationship with those that we're serving. We essentially say... You have to prove to us that you were injured by your time in service. You have to prove to us that Agent Orange is actually bad, and that has to be scientific evidence. And in the meantime, we're going to make you wait. So veterans that were exposed to Agent Orange in the 70s are still today waiting in 2020 to have the government acknowledge their benefits. When I was VA secretary, I gave exceptions to World War II veterans in their late 90s who had been fighting their entire life when they were exposed to mustard gas that the, that the government was still denying that they had been exposed to mustard gas. And I was not going to let them die. They weren't doing it for the money at that point. They wanted a recognition of what they had done for their country and their service. And so I think it's an outrage that we are making our Vietnam veterans still wait and have to prove to us that Agent Orange has contributed to their adverse health conditions. The Blue Water Navy, which I was the only VA secretary to come out and to say, we have to correct the situation. 50 years is too long for them to wait. Um, finally, now has been approved and the president has signed off on the ability for Blue Water Navy veterans to be recognized more than 50 years later for the yeah. service. But there are other Agent Orange conditions that today still are not recognized. Our burn pit uh, veterans from the Gulf War are suffering and not recognized. And we really, I believe, need to redo our entire benefit system to give the benefit of the doubt to the veteran. And then if the evidence shows that there wasn't a relationship then we change the benefit, not the not making them wait until all this evidence comes in. The other way around, yeah, yeah. Well, we come to a point in the program where, unfortunately, there's time for just one more question. Okay, that's what it's going to be. With all that you went through, with the political infighting, with the damage to your and your family's reputation, uh, with the frustration yep. of trying to get things done, would you do it over again? Uh, you know. Um, There is no doubt this was the greatest honor of my professional life. And uh, if I believe that I've helped move the system forward and helped veterans or maybe even saved one life of a veteran from taking their own life, uh, absolutely, it's worth it. Uh, But the question I get most often is from people who say, I'm thinking about public service. Should I, after seeing what happened to you, should I go and volunteer should I go into government? And I say, absolutely, you should. Because if I ever felt that the answer was no, I'd really be very concerned about the future of our government. But what I tell people is when you go in, you have to 
make sure that you understand what you stand for, what your principles are, and you have to be willing to put those principles above you keeping your job. That if you're not willing to stand up and to be fired, that you're not doing anybody a service and you're not going in for the right reason. But if you're going in because you want to make a difference, no matter what your political ideology is, if you really are doing it for mission and to improve the lives of others, I think it's a great place to spend your time. And I believe it's an obligation of people who have learned something that can help other people to apply that in public service. Wonderful. Well, David, I want to thank you for your service to America and the ongoing commitment to our veterans. And more formally, on behalf of the Commonwealth Club, our thanks to Dr. David Shulkin, the former U.S. Secretary of Veterans Affairs and the author of the new book, It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country, Our Broken Government and the Plight of Veterans. I'm Mark Zitter, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. Thank you. Well done. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.